Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Well, here we are for another round of historical studies to help us learn from the past and build a better worldview for the future. Let's pray before we begin. Infinite and eternal God of the universe, possessor of immortality and giver of light and life to all your chosen ones, we worship you and bless your holy name for saving us Gentiles and grafting us into your holy people. We seek your face and ask for your truth to light our way so that we can follow you all the days of our life, both here and in the heavens above. Be with us here as we study the Bible and history and enable us to understand it so that we can apply it to our lives in a way that lets your light shine through us to enlighten the pathway of others. We pray this in the name of our glorious Savior and Lord, Jesus. Amen. I want to mention the possibility here that there may not be a podcast next week because my wife and I are going out to Ohio to visit our grandkids and my daughter's twins have their first birthday this coming Saturday. And so I may not be able to get our podcast done in time to take that trip. And so I want to let you know that there may not be a podcast next week because of that reason. Well, last time we looked at the early months of the rebellion from August through December of 66 AD, and we saw how the zealots quickly organized their government and prepared for the Roman attack. The Roman legate in Antioch, Cestius Gallus, did not waste any time responding to the rebellion, but his attack on Jerusalem was mismanaged from the start to the finish. His failure to squash the rebellion only strengthened and emboldened the zealot cause and made the carnage and the misery and the destruction 70 times worse than it would have been otherwise. This time we want to look at Vespasian's and Titus's preparations for the war and their attack upon Galilee. Vespasian eventually eliminated all of the resistance in the north, and pushed all the rebels to the south toward Jerusalem. Just as Vespasian was preparing to attack Jerusalem, Nero died and plunged the whole Roman Empire into a state of instability and uncertainty. After a year of civil wars and strife by would-be emperors, Vespasian was hailed by the legions as the new emperor. I don't know if we'll get to all of those ideas uh, in this podcast, but I wanted to mention them here at the outset so that we can see what is uh, going on here in the very near future. One of the things that we need to point out, in case we have not already noticed it, is that the Christians totally disappeared from the historical narrative right after the war broke out in the summer of AD 66. Neither Josephus, Tacitus, Yosipon, or Hegesippus mention any activities of any Christians during the war from AD 66 to 70. There are no more New Testament books being written. 
no more missionary journeys, and no participation in the zealot war effort. Josephus mentions Essenes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Hellenistic Jews, proselytes, Babylonian and Persian Jews, Idumeans, Galileans, Samaritans, and all other Jews from all over the Roman Empire coming back to Judea to help fight the war. But there is no mention of any Christians whatsoever. There is a strange absence of Christians at this time. Jewish historians like Greats do not mention the presence and activities of Christians again until a couple of decades after the war. And even then, it is not the kind of Christians that we saw before the war. The Christians that the rabbis in Yavne encountered and interacted with in their synagogues after the war, according to Greats, were only half Judean and half Christian. This sounds more like the Ebionites and Nazarene Unitarian Judaizers who would have felt comfortable congregating in the synagogues. The statements of greats about this are particularly interesting. Quote, to suppress this opposition of his rivals and other heretics such as the Christians, Rabban Gamaliel resorted to excommunication, and we're talking about events here that occurred about two decades after 70 AD. This Rabbi Gamaliel here is the grandson of the rabbi that Apostle Paul studied under in Jerusalem. And so his grandson is here in Yavne, 20 years after the war, persecuting Christians. And Greats goes on to say, Rabban Gamaliel resorted to excommunication, which he used with the recklessness of deep-seated conviction, actuated by his determination to prevent any schism in Judaism with its evil consequences, particularly because so many half-Judean and half-Christian sects were already in existence, Rabban Gamaliel did not hesitate to proceed with severity on the slightest occasion, and he had the courage to punish with excommunication even the most eminent persons, and even his own brother-in-law, Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkin. As a result of the energetic administration of this patriarch, the Sanhedrin of Yavne became the very heart, the center of activity of the Judean nation in all the lands of its dispersion. The patriarch himself, as a member of the house of Hillel, and thus a descendant of the royal house of David, was given princely honor and homage. The people were proud of the fact that the princely dignity still remained in the house of David, thereby fulfilling the prophecy that the scepter shall not depart from the tribe of Judah. The patriarch Gamaliel had charge of the internal administration of the community and had the right to appoint judges and other communal officers. Uh, That's in Great's Popular History of the Jews, Volume 2, pages 258 and 259. Now, what we noticed here is that Greats mentions the fact that 20 years here after 70 AD, the Christians that the rabbis were coming in contact with were described by Greats as being half Judean and half Christian. 
and they were evidently participating in the synagogue worship and were being excommunicated by Rabbi Gamaliel for being heretical in their doctrines regarding Judaism. And so, very interesting here that the Christians we see after 70 AD, 20 years later, are not the kind of Christians that we would have seen before 70 AD in the churches that Apostle Paul, for instance, would have uh, started up uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And so, there's a difference here that I think we need to note. And that difference is because these Christians that the rabbis are encountering after 70 AD were at least very confused, if not, in fact, the same kind of Ebionites and Nazarenes that we talked about in the past. They were Unitarian Judaizers who still believed in going to the synagogues, who still believed in keeping the law and practicing circumcision and requiring all Gentiles to be circumcised in order to become Christians. And so, that appears to be the kind of Christians that these rabbis in Yavne were encountering 20 years after 70 AD. Now, that raises some questions. Why in the world are they the only kind of Christians that the rabbis were encountering? Why don't we see them encountering some true Christians instead of just these halfway Christians uh, that were Unitarians and Judaizers? And I think we need to note also what Josephus says about the condition of Christianity at this very time. When he wrote his 20 volumes of the Antiquities of the Jews, he finished that and published that in 93 AD. And so he was still writing it at the time that this Rabbi Gamaliel was excommunicating Christians in 90 AD. And Josephus says this about the condition of Christianity at the time he wrote the Antiquities, which would have been about 90 A.D., 20 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. Notice what he says here in Antiquities, Book 18, Section 64. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them live again on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. And of course he's talking about at the time he was writing, which would have been 90 A.D., 20 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. It's very interesting that Josephus says, the tribe of Christians are not extinct at this day. Now, there's all kinds of speculation about what Josephus means here. Is he lamenting the fact that they were not extinct like he had hoped they would be? Or is he simply matter-of-factly talking about the, the actual status of Christianity at that point? and not really uh, intending any good or bad in his comments. That's something that we will need to analyze in the context of his whole account there. Well, the Jewish Encyclopedia also talks about these encounters that the Yavnian rabbis had with Christians a couple of decades after the war. It says this on the uh, Jewish Encyclopedia website, in regard to 
Rabbi Gamaliel, it says, especially interesting are the accounts of the debates which the rabbinical scholars held with unbelievers in Rome and in which Gamaliel was the chief speaker in behalf of Judaism. Elsewhere, also, Gamaliel had frequent opportunities to answer in controversial conversations the questions of unbelievers and to explain and defend the teachings of the Jewish religion. At times, Gamaliel had to meet the attacks of confessors of Christianity. One of these was the men, or philosopher, who maliciously concluded from Hosea 5, verse 6, that God had completely forsaken Israel. There is a satirical point in the story in which Gamaliel, with his sister, brings a fictitious suit concerning an inheritance before a Christian judge and convicts him of having accepted bribes. Whereupon Gamaliel quotes Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 17. The sect of believers in Jesus, which was ever separating itself more distinctly from all connection with Judaism, and which, with other heretics, was classed under the name of Menim, led Gamaliel, because of its tendencies dangerous to the unity of Judaism, to introduce a new form of prayer, which he requested Samuel Hakatan to compose, and which was inserted in the chief daily prayer, the 18 benedictions. This prayer itself, which together with the Shema, forms the most important part of the Jewish prayer book, likewise owes its final revision to Gamaliel. It was Gamaliel, also, who made the recitation of the 18 benedictions a duty to be performed three times a day by every Israelite. And, of course, the source for that quote uh, is the Jewish Encyclopedia article on Gamaliel II. And the reference for that is in our lesson outline. Now, we're going to have a lot more to say about all this when we get into the history of the next generation after the destruction of Jerusalem. But for now, I wanted to note that for some reason, there were not very many Christians on the historical landscape after 70 AD until almost two decades after the destruction of Jerusalem. Very interesting. Historians have scratched their heads bald, wondering why there is such an absence and silence of these Christians after 70 AD for a couple of decades. And so that's something for us to ponder and think about, and I think we'll look at that more as we get into the history after 70 AD. Now let's get back into our historical narrative here, into the... Uh, outbreak of the war and the beginning of Vespasian's attack on Galilee. We noticed last time Cestius Gallus's unsuccessful attempt to control the revolt and his uh, departure back away from Jerusalem, which ended in an absolute destruction of almost 10,000 of his forces at the very time he could have taken it if he had just pursued the war a few more days. As a result of that, when Nero hears about that fiasco of Cestius Gallus, he sends Vespasian. 
And meanwhile, before Vespasian gets there, the Jewish zealots begin their preparations for the war. And so they have a big council in Jerusalem in the winter of 66 and 67 to select their leaders and organize the government for the coming war effort. After Cestius was defeated and withdrew, the zealots believed they were invincible and that they had God on their side. They met together with the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem during the winter months, December through March, to organize their government and to enact laws to control the new independent nation. Greats thinks that the 18 benedictions were made obligatory at this time, forced into law by Eliezer ben Ananias at a synod held in his personal residence. Great says several times that it was Eliezer ben Ananias who gave the first impetus to the mighty struggle. The fundamental purpose behind the 18 benedictions, according to Greats, was nothing short of a total separation or the erection of an insurmountable barrier between Judeans and heathens. Judeans were forbidden to learn the language of the heathens, to accept gifts from them for the temple, and even to buy wine, oil, bread, and other food from them. These decrees became known under the caption of 18 benedictions. Notice that last prohibition, no buying from Gentiles. It was designed to keep their coinage from getting into the hands of Gentiles and to prevent Judeans from any commercial dealings with the Gentiles. No buying and selling with the Gentiles. It was evidently about this same time that they selected ten governors to oversee the seven regions of Palestine. There may have been twelve governors selected, since Josephus admits later in his autobiography that there were two other priests, Joazer and Judas, selected to serve either alongside him or underneath him in the management of affairs in Galilee. It appears that the Sanhedrin largely composed of moderates, was in control of approving these governors. The president of the Sanhedrin at this time was supposedly Simon ben Gamaliel, son of the very same Gamaliel who taught Apostle Paul. His two main associates in the leadership of the Sanhedrin were Ananus II and Joseph ben Gorion. Here is a list of governors that they chose to oversee the seven regions of Palestine. For the region of Jerusalem, it was Joseph ben Gurion and Ananus II. And of course, this Ananus II is the very same guy who had James killed four years earlier in 62 AD. Over the region of Idumea, there were three governors selected. Jesus ben Saphius, Eliezer ben Ananias, and Niger the Perean. Over Jericho, they selected Joseph ben Simon. Over Perea, they selected Manasseh. And then northwest Judea had John the Essene. And northeast Judea had John ben Matthias, 
or son of Ananias. And in the far north, of course, the two Galilees and Gamla, they selected Josephus, Ben Matthias, with two helpers, uh, the priest Joazer and Judas, underneath him, at least according to Josephus. Now, uh, he admits that they were selected to rule that area alongside him as co-rulers, but in the wars, he paints the picture that they were underneath him. Well, here in December of 66 AD, while the zealots were having their council together in Jerusalem, preparing for the war effort, Vespasian was on his way to Antioch, sent there by Nero to gather up the two legions there in Antioch and prepare them over the winter time to march down to Ptolemais and begin the war against the zealots. And while Vespasian was on his way to Antioch, Titus was sent to Alexandria in Egypt to fetch the legion that was there. Then over the winter months, they assembled their troops and prepared for the march to Judea. In the springtime, probably in March, they would bring the legions together at Ptolemais, which was right there by the valley of Megiddo, right there close to Galilee. It's interesting that they gathered their three legions plus auxiliaries right there on the plain of Megiddo, Armageddon. They began the war right there on the plain of Megiddo. Well, Nero, of course, was in Achaia, or Greece, at the time, competing in the games while all this was going on. Vespasian and Titus, of course, were nearby, providing a a bodyguard for Nero while he was there. And the information about Nero's trip to Greece and all the stuff that happened there is recorded for us in Tacitus and Suetonius, as well as Dio Cassius. Additional valuable material comes from inscriptions, coinage, papyri, and archaeology. In July of AD 66, Nero took a trip to Greece where he participated in each of the great festivals and won hundreds of contests. Of course, none of the judges there were willing to vote against him on pain of death, so he won every contest he competed in. He did not return to Rome until the fall of AD 67, which was over a year of visitation in Greece. This extended presence or visitation of Nero to Greece is a good illustration of the meaning of the Greek word parousia. It does not mean just a one-day event. It means an extended visit of weeks months, or even a year or more, as in the case of Nero here in 66 AD. And it's interesting that one of the uh, Latin writers talks about the advent of Nero to Greece. And of course, the Latin word advent is the Latin equivalent of the Greek word parousia. And so what they're saying here is that in Greece, they would have used the word Perusia to describe Nero's visit, whereas in Rome, using Latin, they referred to that visit as his advent to Greece. 
but both words, Advent and parousia, mean an extended visit of weeks, months, or even a year or more, as we see here in the case of Nero. Vespasian and Titus had traveled along with Nero on his visit to Greece as his protectors and bodyguards. When Nero heard about the humiliating defeat of the 12th Legion under Cestius Gallus in the fall of 66 AD, he commissioned Vespasian to put down the rebellion, even though Vespasian had been for a short time before that in Nero's disfavor. For either leaving the room during Nero's song recitals or staying in the room and falling asleep. According to Suetonius, it was in Greece that Vespasian offended the emperor during one of Nero's recitals. Luckily, Vespasian only incurred banishment from the court, but in fear of his life, Vespasian fled out into the country to a small out-of-the-way township. Meanwhile, the revolt had begun in Judea, so Nero recalled Vespasian, his most able commander, from banishment, granting him a special command to crush the revolt. Nero suspected the cause of Cestius' defeat was the incompetence of Cestius, so he appointed Vespasian to lead the forces in Antioch against Judea in place of Cestius Gallus. Vespasian was 57 years old at the time. Vespasian sent his oldest son, Titus, by fast boat to Alexandria in Egypt to fetch the 15th legion, Apollinaris, from there and marched them quickly along the coast to Caesarea for the winter and then on to Ptolemais in the early spring. Meanwhile, Vespasian traveled through Greece to cross the Hellespont near Troas, and then traveled on the major trade routes through Turkey to reach Antioch, the capital of Syria, by February of 67, where the 5th and 10th legions, Macedonia and Fratensis, uh, the latter of which was commanded by Opius Trajanus, who was the father of the future emperor Trajan, And that was where he gathered those two legions, the 10th Legion and the 5th Legion, and prepared them for the march to Palestine. Some have suggested that as Vespasian traveled with his troops through the cities of Asia, that he may have killed any Christians or Jews that he encountered on his way to Antioch. But there is no evidence that any Christians were affected by that hasty trip through Turkey. They had already been killed in the Neuronic persecution or raptured by that time. If there were any Jewish communities still left in those cities through which Vespasian passed, they would most likely have been taken captive or killed uh, as he passed through. In Antioch, Vespasian spent the winter, November 66 to March of 67, meeting with his military advisors and planning his battle strategy and assembling the two legions along with Agrippa's whole army, as well as other auxiliaries and mercenaries that were sent from the surrounding nations which were allied with Rome. In the spring of A.D. 67, Vespasian then marched those assembled forces to Ptolemais, 
to meet Titus's forces there. This was a massive fighting force of almost 60,000 soldiers, uh, almost three times the number of soldiers that Cestius Gallus had brought. And so there was more than enough to take care of the Jewish war. Well, in March of 67, Vespasian and Titus assembled their army at Armageddon. Titus brought the 15th legion from Alexandria. Vespasian brought the 5th and 10th legions from Antioch. The assembled force in Ptolemais was now 60,000 strong, with three legions plus Agrippa's forces, auxiliaries, and mercenaries. And it was assembled and organized for attack right there in Ptolemais, the coastal city on the edge of the plain of Megiddo. Well, by May of 67, Vespasian began his military operations in Galilee. Gadara is attacked and falls right away. The Sea of Galilee was turned into a pool of blood. Josephus and his forces retreated to Jadapata, where he held out for 47 days. Just as the Romans were about to break through, Josephus and the other leaders joined in a mutual death pact. However, Josephus was the last man standing, and he decided not to kill himself so that he was taken alive by the Vespasian forces. Now, I'm not going to provide an awful lot of detail here uh, in this session about the activities of Josephus there against Vespasian in Galilee. I may provide some more details in our next session, but I'm not going to do it this time. I want to simply give us an overview of that so that we'll have a basic sketch of his Galilean campaign in front of us before we look at the details. And by the way, if you want to get a head start on that, uh, you might go to the Josephus website and look at his war chronology there because he gives a lot of those details there in the website. But we will look at a little bit of an overview here. There's not much of significance for our Christian history to be found here in that period when Vespasian was eliminating the rebel forces from the Galilean region and pushing them all toward Jerusalem. However, I do plan to give more details about this when they get to Jerusalem, of course, because that's where we'll see a lot of fulfillments in the book of Revelation. But there are some fulfillments of the book of Revelation to be found here in these battles in Galilee, and we will try to point those out in our next session together. This was a very significant period here in this Galilean campaign, which shows many fulfillments of Jesus' predictions in the Olivet Discourse, as well as John's predictions in the book of Revelation. And so we will want to look at those fulfillments as we go through it in detail at uh, the next session. There are a few statements about how much bloodshed there was in Galilee at this time when Jadapada and some of the other cities right there on the coast of the Sea of Galilee fell into the hands of Vespasian. And at the battle where Josephus was captured, uh, there was also a lot of bloodshed there. And all that bloodshed, as it's described by Josephus, echoes a lot of the words that we see in the apocalypse about the blood flowing 
in the rivers and lakes, etc. And we see Josephus describe that, and he tells us about the dead bodies floating down from the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River, all the way to the Dead Sea. And we're not going to read all those statements here, of course, but uh, they're spelled out in the Josephus website. And so I would encourage all of us, uh, before we get to our next session, to take a look at the Josephus website. And it's real easy to get to. It's simply uh, josephus.org. Josephus.org. And I would encourage you spending some time there, especially on the war chronology. A lot of really good material put together there. That'll give you a good head start on getting a grasp of how all these things mentioned in the Olivet Discourse and the Book of Revelation were fulfilled. Well, here's some statements from the Josephus website here. He quotes Martin Goodman in his book, The Ruling Class of Judea, who says, The Roman commander, Vespasian, surely knew that Jerusalem's walls would be exceptionally difficult to breach. Any technique that could avoid a direct assault with the danger of the loss of thousands of soldiers must be avoided. So he, like Cestius Gallus before him, chose a strategy of terror. Thus, Vespasian's first strategic goal became the subjugation of Galilee. Josephus' men refused to face the combined legions in the field. As a result, their activities in Galilee were purely defensive. The cities Josephus had fortified waited their turn for Vespasian's army to come against them. But several of them gave formidable resistance, which infuriated the Roman soldiers. Josephus was captured at Jadapada under extraordinary circumstances after a siege of 47 days. When brought before Vespasian and Titus, Josephus predicted that Vespasian would become emperor. He was not believed and spent the next two years in chains in the Roman camp, during which he began to write about the war. After four emperors died in quick succession and Vespasian became emperor himself, Josephus was freed and adopted into Vespasian's family, the Flavians, and so became Flavius Josephus. Well, this was in about August of 67 AD when Josephus was captured by Vespasian and held in chains. He then made the prediction, as we noticed from the Josephus website, that Vespasian would become emperor. So his life was spared by Vespasian to see if this prediction would ever materialize. Josephus was kept alive as a hostage and interpreter. Vespasian continued crushing all zealot resistance in Galilee as he prepared for his advance to Jerusalem. He had the scorched earth policy, which means leave no survivors behind. He left no resistance behind him that might cause him any trouble later. He pushed everything ahead of him toward Jerusalem. Well, as Vespasian was pushing all these folks out of Galilee and pushing them toward Jerusalem, 
some of the armed groups of bandits and rebels down in the south in Judea were plundering and pillaging the moderates and pro-Romans in the Judean countryside, while Vespasian was up north subjugating Galilee. And so they had very little attacks upon them, and so they sallied outside of Jerusalem and gathered in food and supplies for the war effort by plundering the Judean countryside. Simon, son of Giora, was deposed from his command at Acrobatine by Ananus II, so he went not too far away to Masada to take refuge there with the Sicarii. Later in the fall of 67, Vespasian finally subjugated all of Galilee, and then he wintered his troops in Caesarea until the springtime. So from November of 67 until March of 68, he was there in Caesarea wintering the troops, preparing for their assault on Judea. At this same time, John of Giscala had just fled from Giscala uh, because of Vespasian's defeat of that city and fortress. And so John of Giscala fled from there and was not captured by Vespasian and went to Jerusalem with his band of followers. Over the winter of 67 and 68, more rebels joined forces in Jerusalem with the zealots there. Refugees from Galilee fled to Jerusalem. Plus, there was more folks from the Judean countryside and even outside Palestine who began arriving in Jerusalem to help in the struggle. And they, of course, were welcomed by the populace in Jerusalem. The more, the merrier. The more hands we have to fight, the better. During the winter of 67 and 68, there was a famine in Rome, which was worsened by Nero's use of the grain ships to bring in sand for his arena and his circus and his entertainment and games that he had at the Colosseum there. So he was more concerned about entertaining the folks than he was in feeding the folks and keeping them alive so that they could be entertained. Well, it caused a real famine, shortage of grain and food and bread there in Rome as a result of that. Well, during winter here of 67-68, inside Jerusalem, the Zealot factions were vying for control over the Zealot forces. The leaders of those various factions were trying to knock off their opponents and gain full control over the whole Zealot army. As a result of that struggle for supremacy between those various factions in Jerusalem, it left their preparations and defensive for the upcoming siege a lot weaker than they would have been if they had united together against the Romans. But they didn't think they were going to have any problem beating the Romans, and so they wanted to be in command of the Zealot forces so that they could take credit for it and be the ruler of this new Zealot kingdom after the war was over. Well, they were sadly mistaken in their estimation of the power of Rome. They did not have God on their side, and so ultimately they would pay the severe penalty. Well, it was during that winter of 68, of course, that the Zealots chose a new high priest. Uh, We mentioned in past sessions that Matthias 
was the high priest, the last high priest that had been chosen by Agrippa II just before the war. And now he's replaced by a new high priest that's selected by the zealots. His name was Phineas ben Samuel, and he was not related to the previous Herodian appointees at all, nor to any of the most prestigious families of priests who had held the office since the days of Herod the Great. According to Josephus, he was the last of the high priest, and the 83rd high priest, counting from Aaron, as being the first. And Josephus lists all of these priests in his Antiquities, uh, Book 20, Sections 224 through 251. Very interesting list there. Phanius was chosen by lot from the priestly family of Eniachim, from the village of Aphthia, according to Vanderkam in his book on the high priest, page 488. Phanius was uneducated and untrained in the temple ritual, so he had to be coached on everything that he did. He's also mentioned in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Yoma, Folio 1, Section 6 and 7. The men of power and the moderates there in Jerusalem, led by Ananus II, Jesus of Gamla, and Simeon ben Gamaliel, were upset at the zealots for this disenfranchisement of their priestly power. So they urged the populace there in Jerusalem to drive the zealots from the temple. This stirred up a lot more internal fighting in Jerusalem between the moderates and the zealots. During all this factional fighting in January and February of 68 AD, while Vespasian was wintering his troops in Caesarea, during all this factional fighting, the zealots, under the control of Eleazar, killed some of the moderate leaders whom they suspected of being Roman sympathizers. Ananus II and his moderate forces then counterattacked and bottled up the zealots in the inner temple and took control of the rest of the city. Ananus II placed a guard of 6,000 men around the outer temple porticos to keep the zealots inside. The injured zealots retreated back into the temple, defiling those sacred courts with their blood. Ananus II foolishly trusted John of Giscala to become his ambassador to the zealots to try to negotiate with them from a position of strength and get their cooperation with him. But once John got inside the temple, he betrayed Ananus and claimed that Ananus had invited Vespasian to take the city, and that Ananus was planning to destroy the zealot leaders once they came out of the temple. This was all the zealots needed to hear. The zealots immediately dispatched two fast messengers to the Idumeans, begging them to come and help them overpower the moderates and free them from their temple imprisonment. Well, the Idumeans came immediately. But they had to camp outside the city because Ananus II was in control of the city walls and would not let the Idumeans in because he knew why they had come to Jerusalem on such short notice. Ananus had his friend Jesus ben Gamaliel speak to the Idumeans and try to clear up their big misunderstanding of the whole situation. 
Idumeans had been misinformed. Annas II was not in league with the Romans, as he had been accused of by the Zealots, so the Idumeans should instead support the cause of Annas and help him get rid of the abominable rebels who were polluting the temple and destroying the countryside. These words of Jesus ben Gamaliel were simply not accepted by the Idumeans. So they remained outside the gates overnight, trying to decide what to do. Well, during the night, there was a terrible thunderstorm and severe lightning and torrential downpours with high winds, which drowned out all the noise of the zealots in the temple, who escaped from the temple and opened a small gate for the Idumeans to come inside. And of course, once they were inside, they strengthened the forces of the zealots, allowing the zealots then to kill the guards of Ananus that were guarding the temple and liberated the zealots from the temple so that they could then turn their wrath upon Ananus and his forces. They found Ananus II and Jesus ben Gamaliel and killed them along with a lot of the citizens there in the upper city. In fact, there was 8,500 soldiers and citizens who were killed as a result of that attack of the Idumeans and the Zealots combined. The whole outer courts of the temple were deluged with blood, Josephus says. The corpses of Ananus and Jesus were mistreated and abused and cast outside the city without a decent burial. This was a gross abomination by the Zealots. Ananus II was the son of the high priest Ananus I, who had arrested Jesus our Lord and before whom Jesus was tried 36 years before. Now his son, Ananus II, was appointed high priest for three months back in AD 62, during which time he arrested James and some of his companions and put James to death. And of course, we talked about it in previous sessions Uh, when we looked at the events of April of 62. So this is the Annalus II that we're dealing with here. He was killed by the Zealots and the Idumeans there after they broke in on the night of that terrible storm. And I believe that terrible storm is uh, mentioned in the book of Revelation, and we'll look at that uh, in future sessions. Now the Zealots had control of the city, thanks to the Idumeans. The moderate party of Ananus was crushed. Josephus lamented the death of Ananus II and said that it sealed the doom of the city. Well, once the Zealots had control of the city here in February of 68 AD, they began rounding up all the citizens of Jerusalem whom they suspected of being in sympathy with Ananus II and the moderates. Anyone who would not join them and support them, they arrested, gave them a quick trial, and then killed them and seized all their property and possessions. By the time they were through, 12,000 citizens had been killed, including most of the young nobility and the eminent Zacharias, son of Berechias. The Idumeans began to be uncomfortable with all this ruthless and unnecessary bloodshed, and one of the zealots admitted to them that Annas II was really not the traitor that the zealots had accused him of being. Upon hearing that, 
The Edomians then opened the prison doors and released 2,000 moderates who had been imprisoned there by the Zealots. Then the Edomians left to return to Edomia. After the Edomians left, the Zealots had absolute control of the city, and they immediately took advantage of the opportunity to murder every person whom they suspected of having any opposition to them, including Gorion, Ben-Joseph, and Niger the Perean, two of their most valiant warriors. The Zealots became so tyrannical that they trampled on every law and principle of decency. There was no abomination or lawlessness that they refrained from. Lots of people tried to flee the city at this time, but they were killed by the zealots before they could get away, and their bodies were left unburied to putrefy where they had fallen. Well, not long after this, John of Giscala had gained a lot of influence among the zealots through his treachery and intrigue, He now began gathering followers around himself and maneuvering to take over the leadership of the Zealots who were now in control of the city as a result of the help from the Edomians. So the Zealots now split into two factions, one led by John of Giscala and the other led by Eleazar, Ben Ananias or Ben Simon, depending on which historian we are to believe here. Josephus says it was Eliezer ben Simon, but Yosipon and Hegesippus indicate that it was still Eliezer ben Ananias who was there leading the faction of zealots that were in the temple area. Uh, Eliezer had a, uh, another guy that was helping him, Zacharias ben Phalek. So here in March of 68 AD, just as spring was just, just about to arrive, Vespasian and Titus get their troops all ready, and on March the 21st of 68 AD, they begin their spring campaign to clear out all the resistance in Perea, east of Judea, on the east side of the Jordan River, as well as western Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. And what Vespasian and Titus are doing here is they're cleaning out all the nest of zealots that were hiding there and camping in the hills around Jerusalem and forcing them to flee into Jerusalem. They bottled up all the rebels inside Jerusalem. Vespasian believed that once all the rebels had fled to Jerusalem, they would weaken themselves by internal fighting and make his task an awful lot easier. Well, he was right. Uh, That's exactly what happened as we see when John of Giscala gathered forces around him and became a rival faction in Jerusalem against Eliezer ben Ananias. By the end of spring, in late May of 68 AD, Vespasian had subdued Perea, western Judea, and Idumea. All was now set for the siege of Jerusalem. But Nero died. On June the 9th of 68 AD, just as Vespasian was getting ready to go after Jerusalem. When Nero died, it instantly put everything on hold. Vespasian suspended his activities and postponed his attack on Jerusalem until he could find out more about what was going on in Rome. 
And I think I'll stop here at this point. I'll pick up here next time and talk more about the activities of Vespasian up until the time of Nero's death. Uh, But this has given us a quick overview of the first two years of the war so that we can begin to get a handle on the sequence of events, what happened and when and how. We're going to see the value of this historical knowledge when we get into the fulfillments of the book of Revelation. And that's one of the reasons why I began this study of history about six years ago. I wanted to understand the book of Revelation, and I noticed that a lot of the things that are mentioned in the book of Revelation are discussed in Josephus. So I decided I needed to get a really good handle on Josephus so that it would help me understand the book of Revelation better. That's the method in the madness here. If you're interested in knowing what the book of Revelation is talking about, We need to pay very close attention to all this history that Josephus and Tacitus and Yosipon and Hegesippus are providing for us. Very, very helpful stuff when we get into the book of Revelation. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this session. Lord willing, we'll look at a lot more details on all this in our next session together. I appreciate you listening, and we'll talk to you next time. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.